As we begin our, uh, our, our time today, I want to show you a couple of pictures. Um, Diane, were you able to put those in? Okay, here's picture number one. And the question I want you to ask is, which one of these two pictures is showing worship? Okay, there's picture number one. Let's show picture number two. Picture number two. Okay, there's picture two. Let's go back to picture number one. So let you take those two scenes. They're very different scenes. How many of you would say, picture number one, there's real worship going on in that one? Okay, how many of you would say picture number two is showing real worship? How many of you are saying, I don't really want to vote because this feels like a trick question? Okay, that's everybody. This feels like a trap. Um, it kind of is. It kind of is because in one sense, the answer is in both pictures, worship is going on. In both pictures, people are worshiping someone or something. You see, without knowing anything about the beliefs or the practices uh, or the desires and affections of either of these two groups of people, there's something we know that is true of all human beings, is we were made in the image of God, and therefore we were made to be worshipers. We are all worshipers of something. If not the one true God, then we'll worship something in the creation. We'll even worship ourselves or an idol that we make. We have this inexorable longing for glory. We're made to know and to treasure the one true God. And because we have universally turned away from him, we fill that longing and that desire with something else. There's the statement that nature abhors a vacuum. Our hearts likewise abhor the vacuum of worship. There's no such thing as someone who doesn't worship. So on one level, the answer is both. Both the people in the cathedral setting and the people in the concert setting are worshiping. And in another sense, the answer is neither. Some people may look at that second picture and say, well, that looks like a very traditional church setting. There's a pipe organ. There's a choir. It looks very dignified and restrained and traditional. That is real worship. Real worship is stained glass windows and hymns and hymn books and pews and pianos and singing the old hymns that we all grew up singing. And other people would say, no, the other picture, people are raising their hands and clapping and there's exciting music that is going on. That must be real worship. Well, the picture of the, 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 this one here that's up right now is a picture of some random rock concert I found on the internet. I know nothing about who the group is or who the people are or what they are worshiping. Just because there's lights and big drums and noise and people getting excited doesn't mean that the, the Spirit of God is necessarily involved. And the other picture that looks oh so like a traditional church service is the Mormon Tabernacle in Utah. And though they may sing some of the same hymns, they are not worshiping the same God. They're worshiping a God of their own making. They are believing a gospel that is a false gospel. They have all the trappings of Christianity and the richness of beauty and harmony, but they are not worshiping the one true God of the Bible as he has revealed himself in Christ. Therefore, it is false worship offered to a false God. My point being is when we come into a discussion about worship, appearances can be deceiving. Those of us from a more traditional conservative bent can assume that if there's hymn books and pews and 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 the old rugged cross things like it must be real worship. And those who come from a more contemporary background can say, man, if, we're, if it's real worship, we're going to get excited. And those who are sort of worshiping in a more traditional style can't really be worshiping because you're not excited enough. Careful. Worship is not about style. Worship is not about what kind of music or what instruments are used on the platform to lead God's people in singing. In fact, worship is ultimately not primarily about music at all. Sometimes worship is used in sort of Christian vernacular as, man, the worship today was great, and people mean, man, the band did a great job or the choir was awesome. Worship is not Christianese for singing. Worship is so much bigger than music. Worship is so much bigger than just we have our 1030 gathered worship service. Worship is about responding to the revelation of the one true God. The, the, word, the English word worship literally means worship to ascribe worth and value and honor and majesty to God. And that can be expressed through our singing. That can be expressed by our humbling of ourselves. The Greek word that's translated worship literally has the, the image of bowing ourselves down humbly before a God who is great. Here's something you'll see in Scripture as you do a study of worship. Is the response of worship always follows the revelation of God's glory. Worship is not simply an emotion that is stirred up by dimming all the lights and, and turning up the amplifier. Worship is not about the, the feeling of transcendence you get as the light streams through the stained glass and you, you remember sitting on your grandma's knee in church. Worship is not about a feeling or about a sentiment. 
Worship is about ascribing worth and value to God. It's all about the object of the worship. We can have all of the nicest music in the world and the most organized church service, but if we do not have a revelation of the majesty and the character and the truth of God, we are not worshiping. We are not worshiping. Worship, Jesus says, is done in spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God is stirring and it is internal. And it is in truth. It is in agreement with the truth that God has revealed about himself from the word of God. That is why at the heart of our worship service is the exposition of scripture. So do, banish from your mind the notion that what we just did for the last half hour, that was worship, and now this is preaching. The goal is for everything we do to be about stirring our affections for Christ and ascribing worth and value to God. Now, we're coming back to the book of Acts this morning. We've been doing a series over the last month about what the church is and what the values of the church ought to be. We have talked about the fact that the church should be defined by a disciple-making mission. The, the mission of Cloverleaf Baptist Church is, is laser-focused. It ought to be laser-focused on making disciples, seeing people saved and following Christ. We've, we have discussed the fact that churches should be marked by Bible-saturated teaching and preaching, that the Bible should be declared and expounded in context to the people of God. We have had conversation about gospel-centered fellowship, that we have real relationships rooted in the gospel that, that go beyond just having conversation before and after church every so often, but really getting into one another's lives. We have talked about evangelism. We talked about that last week, what, what spirit-empowered evangelism, that we're not appealing to methods and coercion and manipulation and psychologically trying to make people do something, but simply declaring the gospel of who God is and who we are and what Christ has done and what the response must be. This week, we're going to talk about God-focused worship from the book of Acts. Worship is our glad and humble response to the glory and the majesty of God. So to sort of have a place to start our conversation from the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 2, a text that we have looked at uh, in our study of gospel-centered fellowship, but also brushes up on this idea of God-centered and God-focused worship. So Acts chapter 2, as you remember, Peter has preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He's expounded God's word. 3,000 people have been saved and have followed in the waters of baptism. And the church in Jerusalem has launched. So we see that they have repented, they have been baptized, they've received the gift of the Spirit. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly, those who were, who were saved, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. So what they're devoted to is the teaching of God's word, fellowship with one another, and then we get these ideas of breaking of bread and prayers, this vertical dimension to their gatherings. Okay, there's, there's the worship going on, the breaking of bread, what we call communion. We're going to celebrate that at the end of the service today. Prayers, offering to God corporately, which we have been doing today in our songs. If you notice, by the way, a number of the songs we have sung have been prayers. Hopefully you have prayed them and did not merely sing them. We continue on, verse 43, and fear came upon every soul. There's a palpable sense of the presence of God in the midst of his people. That's a key dimension of worship. It's not just we're gathering and doing some things, but gathering and doing things in the sense that God is present with us, and we are singing and praying to him, and then hearing the word from him, fear, reverence, awe. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Because So they're, they're going to a location that is associated with worship. The temple was the place where the Jewish people gathered to offer sacrifices, to, to praise God, to offer their worship. So there's this continuity with what God was doing under the old covenant with what he's doing now in the new covenant with this new temple of God, which is the redeemed people of Christ. And with one accord uh, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, so small group kind of gatherings, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, generosity. And here we go. In all their gatherings, they are praising God. That is one of the dimensions of worship, is offering praise to God. Most likely, they're singing the Psalms. Like, man, we're reading the Psalms and singing the Psalms that we've had for hundreds of years in a way we never have before because we realize that they're fulfilled in Jesus. 
Right, the redemption that was longed for and hoped for has finally come, and just exuberant praise as they live under this new covenant. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added the church daily, such as should be saved. What I want to assert this morning is that worship is absolutely central to the church. I want to say church, let's just make this practical, Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Worship is, is central to what the church is and to what the church does. I'm going to argue this morning that worship is essential to the very identity of the church. When we see that, hear that term church, we should automatically associate the, the action and the attitude of worship. I want to show you that worship is essential to the mission of the church. It's not that worship is one thing and mission is another, but worship is the fuel and the aim of, of our mission in the world and telling others about Christ. And then we will also see that worship is essential to the gatherings of the church. When we come together, one of our goals, and perhaps the primary goal, is to ascribe worth and value to God as a gathering. So let's start off with that first assertion. Worship is essential to the identity of the church. Here's the thing that you will find if you go home and you do a blue-letter Bible or do some kind of a search through the book of Acts, you'll find that the word worship is rather infrequent. And quite often it's talking about Jewish worship, not even church worship. We don't get a detailed description of what the gatherings of the early church looked like, and here they are worshiping. I puzzled over that. I was thinking, why is there this, this lacuna, this, this, this absence where we don't... If worship is so important, why is it not discussed prominently in the, the book of Acts and in the New Testament? If this is so important, why don't we get a, you know, the, the second book of worship in the New Testament telling us how and what we should do when we worship? The reason we don't get that is because the very concept of church, which is the, this Greek word ekklesia, assembly, congregation, from the Old Testament conjures up this idea of worship, that it is a worshiping community. So in Acts, we will see the church gathering. We'll see the church teaching and preaching and fellowshipping and evangelizing. But we don't get this emphasis, this clearly articulated, explicit statement of worship. Why? Because it is baked into the definition of the word. The word assumes a worshiping community. So if you bear with me, we're going to nerd out a little bit, do a bit of a word study here. Uh, so thinking caps on, this, this idea of this word, church, ecclesia. Pop over with me to Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's sermon uh, before the Sanhedrin. Acts 7 verse 38. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about Moses' ministry. And the point he's making is like, hey, you guys have rejected Moses. Don't accuse me of rejecting Moses. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake unto him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. That, that Greek word, ekklesia, which means an assembly or a congregation, gets translated the word church. And that doesn't mean that the, the, the Old Testament saints are identical with the New Testament saints so that we flatten everything out. But he's referring back to the Old Testament, and there was an edition of the Old Testament that the apostles had called the Septuagint. Okay, we're getting, I told you we're going to get a little bit nerdy. We know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but it got translated into Greek, which was the language of the day. This word that we have in the New Testament church gets used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. When the New Testament writers are using it, they have all of this background of how this word was used in the Old Testament. So let me just sort of summarize this. You wanted to do a quick study of how that word is used through the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You'll find out that the, the ecclesia in the Old Testament, the congregation or assembly is how it's usually rendered in, in our translations, was always a worshiping assembly. Okay, The, the, the word ecclesia can be used in some settings just to refer to some kind of you know, secular gathering or people getting together. But in the Old Testament usage of it, it's always Israel gathering not just to have like a, hey, let's all have a get-together, but gathering to worship God. So, for example, at Mount Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy, it's God's people gathering in covenant before God to hear God give the words of the Torah, right, to give them the Ten Commandments. It's that kind of assembly, not just people who happen to be in the room together, but people who have gathered under the authority and the covenant and in the presence of God to hear the word of God. We see some other examples of it. Let me just give you a couple of these. I'm not going to be exhaustive here today, but in 1 Chronicles, so flip all the way back to 1 Chronicles 29. Something else we see going on with the way this word gets used in the Old Testament. It stands behind this New Testament word church. Worship being baked into the definition. 
What did they do when, they, when, they, when the assembly assembled, when the congregation congregated, when the church churched, so to speak? First Chronicles 29, look at verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. Okay, if, if we had the Greek translation, it would be the word ekklesia, same word we have for church. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after the sort? For all things come from thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we're strangers before thee, and sojourners. As were all our fathers, our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand, and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart, and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. Our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build this, place, this palace for the which I have made provision. And David said to all the congregation, there's the word again, now bless the Lord your God, and all the congregation blessed the Lord God of their fathers, and bowed down their heads, and worshipped the Lord and the king. And they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord, and, burnt, burnt, and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord, on the morrow after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness, and they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. And it goes on. Now, I read that whole statement because this gives us a snapshot of what happens when the congregation congregated in the Old Testament. They worshipped. They offered praise to God. They offered sacrifices to God. They offered thanksgiving to God. So one of the things we see happening, especially in the Old Testament, when the, when the congregation that sort of understood that what, the, what the gathering accomplishes is to worship God and to offer prayers. I'll give you another example. In the book of Nehemiah, and you can just have this for your, your notes, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 2. The other side of the exile, the people gather together. What, what do they do? They hear the word of God read and explained, and then they confess their sins. In the book of Psalms, we get this word shows up ten times. Let me give you a couple of examples in, in the Psalter, how this word, ecclesia, the congregation. Um, Psalm 22, verse 22. David says this, and he's really speaking prophetically, so Christ says this, the, the risen Savior. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Verse 25, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Another example from Psalms is what, what, what is this ecclesia, this assembly? What does it do? Psalm 149 verse 1 says, praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise him uh, praise his name in the dance. They're obviously not Baptist. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and the harp. This is all understood when we read the word church in the New Testament, this idea of a congregation assembly. It is a gathering of the redeemed people of God for the purpose of worship. And it's consistent through the Old Testament. It's a gathering that worship, that sings, that celebrates, that offers sacrifice to God. So we could just build a definition here right now. When you see the word church, it's God's redeemed people gathered in God's presence to hear God's law, to sing God's praises, to offer prayers. So what do they do when they gather? They read the Torah. What do they do when they gather? That would be the Bible. They pray. What do they do? They sing. What do they do? They offer sacrifice. Now, how does this get fulfilled in the New Testament? 
Because we don't come here today and slaughter a bunch of animals, praise Jesus. We recognize that on this side of the cross, the sacrifice has been complete. We gather as new covenant people of God who have been redeemed and forgiven, not bringing in a physical sacrifice, but celebrating the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the book of Hebrews makes, makes a great statement in Hebrews chapter 13. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. To God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name. The sacrifice that you and I offer on this side of the cross is not re-sacrificing Jesus in the mass. We celebrate the Lord's table today. It is a looking back to the finished work. But one sacrifice we can offer, not as a sin offering, but as more of a thank offering, is our praise. There's continuity here from what the Old Testament congregation does and the New Testament congregation, a worshiping community. 1 Peter 2 brings out the same idea that we are a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter chapter 2. We come to him in verse 4. As unto living stones, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In other words, what the temple was in the Old Testament, a place of worship, the church is not the building, but the people in the New Testament. The sacrifices we offer are not physical, but are spiritual. Come down to verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That's all language that spoke of Israel in the Old Testament. Now is applied to the church in the New, showing that there is continuity, not two people of God, but one people of God. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been redeemed and called together as God's people every week to show forth his praise and his majesty. That's worship. So a, 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 a lengthy point to make a simple point. Church, definitionally, as an identity, is a worshiping community. It's not just a bunch of Christians who are hanging out in a coffee shop together. That's wonderful. A church is a gathering of people who have covenanted together in the presence of God for the purpose of worshiping Him corporately. Now, this might raise the question, okay, we're back in, in Acts chapter 2. The people of God are gathering together to praise God. What, what is it about gathering together to praise God? Why can't I just kind of do this on my own? After all, it's sort of inconvenient to have to get out of bed on a perfectly good Sunday morning and get a shower and, like, put clothes on and come hang out with people that I may or may not like seeing on days that I may or may not want to be seen and sing songs that I may or may not enjoy in a style that may or may not be my own, and listen to prayers, and listen to a sermon that may or may not be interesting. What is it, why, why is it that we need to gather to worship? Why can't we just go out and do it all on our own and be like, I'm just going to get the boat, go down to Dauphin Island, and I'll, I'll sell it. I can sing How Great Thou Art Out There, and nobody will hear me except the fish. Why is worship corporate? Well, again, it goes back to this identity the word church is not just a random collection of isolated individuals. It's a corporate gathering. The word is assembly. Like on the box that has church on it, assembly required is going to be on there, like an Ikea furniture set. Assembly is required for the church to be the church. So the, the, the believers in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 7, 47, are gathering together and praising God as they do it. This worship is corporate. It is public. It is gathered. The idea here is worship and praise is as natural to the gathering of the church as fireworks are on the 4th of July. It's like this is what you do. This is what the gathering is all about. It's, it should be as natural and as normal and as fitting for God's people to praise and worship as it is for an airplane to fly or a car to drive. Like when it doesn't happen, something is wrong. A church that does not worship is an oxymoron, just as a church that does not gather is a contradiction in terms. The fact that the church is a worshiping community underscores the fact that this is corporate. You'll notice we, pick, we don't all sing like, hey, everybody just pick your favorite hymn and sing a different hymn at the same time. That would sound really weird. Uh, but we pick one hymn and we all sing it together. Why? So we can with one voice praise God. According to Romans 15, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Why do we have one person lead us in prayer rather than all of us sort of just pray our own prayers at the same time out loud? It's so that we can all say, Amen to the prayer that has been offered. 
Why is it that the prayers that are offered here, we ask the individuals who lead them not to say I and me as they're having a purpose, but to say we and us, is so that we can join those. It's corporate. Corporate worship magnifies the grace of God in greater ways than just individual worship does. So you might be enjoying your favorite music on the radio as you're driving down the road, sort of exalting in that, but there is a greater joy when you go to a concert of people who all enjoy the same music. It multiplies your enjoyment of that. I love Handel's Messiah. Listening to Handel's Messiah by myself is not the same as going to a room full of people who love the same piece of music. Corporate worship magnifies God in greater ways than individual worship. And even when you think about this, when we as diverse and naturally hostile people can praise God together, that celebrates the unity, magnifying, creating grace of God. What's a greater feat in sports? Some random guy by himself grabbing a football and running it down the field. Okay, that's impressive, making a touchdown. But it is a far greater feat to have a whole team of people who make a complex play and make the touchdown because it requires everybody to know their place and their spots. An infield turning a snappy triple play is far more impressive than just one outfielder making a diving catch. And so too, when God's people are brought together in one body to sing and celebrate the same truth, it magnifies the grace of God. It's a greater feat for the grace of God to make us one people, hearts united in throbbing worship and exuberant adoration than it would be for God to just have a bunch of isolated individuals and men be like, we'll see y'all in heaven. Individual acts of bravery might win the Congressional Medal of Honor, but careful maneuvers and combined arms are what win wars. There's something about the corporate that exalts the glory and the grace of God. God's glory is so magnificent, so multifaceted, so inexhaustible, it is most fittingly and beautifully celebrated and admired in community by diverse individuals united as one people under the gospel. That's why worship must be corporate. And this is inherent to the very identity of what it means for us to be the church. So when we come here and you say, you know what, I just don't, I'm not a good singer. I'm not going to sing this Sunday. Or, and I don't want to get too involved. I'm not an emotional. I'm just, you're sort of, Practically in that moment, cutting yourself off from what the church is meant to be. This is who we are. The church is a single body, according to the book of Acts, with Christ as the exalted head. The church is a temple with the Holy Spirit as the enthroned inhabitant. The church is the family of God with God as the benevolent father ruling over it. The church is the assembly with God as the focal point of worship. Church, by definition, is a worshiping community. Worship is essential to the very essence and identity of the church. I want to move on to a second assertion. Worship is essential not only to the identity of the church, but to the mission of the church. So sometimes Christians will be like, you know what, all this gathering and singing, what we really need to be doing is just winning people to Jesus. And worship kind of distracts us from winning people to Jesus. And so every Sunday we just give the, the, the Romans road and have an invitation and have people get saved and just do that week in and week out, but don't really focus on, on the attributes of God and on theology and, and expounding Scripture. We sometimes pit these things against each other, acting as if they're enemies, when in reality they are friends. Back in Acts chapter 2, did you notice this connection? Verse 46, they're continuing in the temple praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people. Their vertical focus on God in worship, the praising God, was not in any way at odds with them having favor and having an influence and having a witness in the community. In fact, the implication here, the insinuation here, is that their praising of God was part of their witness, right? Their corporate worship and coming together and singing and praising and hearing the word was one of the things that was drawing people to Jesus Christ. There's a connection between worship and witness, between praise and preaching, between exaltation and evangelism. Praising God is not contrary to having favor towards the people. In fact, the idea that we get here that I think we can conclude from this is that it is their white-hot worship of God that led to their bold witness. Put it this way, if you want to jot some things down under the second heading, worship is the motivation for our mission. You're not going to be motivated to go tell people about some product that you're not really that excited about. I mean, you could kind of fake it a little bit, I suppose. 
But if you're genuinely going to go around and you're going to be like, man, everybody should go to this restaurant, but you actually hate the restaurant or you find it kind of disgusting, eventually people will catch on. When it comes to our evangelism, we will be the best evangelists when we are enthralled with the person of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of our goals when we come together is we come together as God's people week in and week out to refocus on the gospel and to stir up our affections for Christ. We sort of rehearse the gospel every week in our gathering, even in the order of service. I don't know if you've picked up on this. We start off with a prayer of adoration, who God is. We later on in the service have a prayer of confession, who we are, our fallenness, and our need for redemption. We then will have a, oftentimes a song that celebrates what Christ has done for us. Man, what, I love the third verse of how great thou art. God is so I'm not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. Till on the, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. We sing the gospel to one another. We don't just do that because I'm like, oh, you need to get saved again. No, no, you get saved one time. But we need to be reminded of the gospel again and again and to, to rekindle the flames of gratitude and love in our hearts. It's only as we are truly grateful and moved by what God has done for us that we will be excited to go and bring other people in and let people know about that. My point here is that worship is not a distraction from the mission. It is the motivation for the mission. When we come in and we worship, it's like putting the bellows onto the fire and get the coals hot again. Um, I have a way of starting fires that's probably not approved. Uh, so Keyshawn, if Ron's around, block your ears. Yeah, involve gasoline, yeah, that's a good way to get a fire going. But you put a leaf blower on that sucker, man, pff, that'll get going. Worship is like the leaf blower that blows on the coals of our evangelistic fervor. We'll see this worked out in Acts. Let me show you an example. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I want you to see this. We have another gathering of the church. This is a church not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch. Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And he lists all these guys out. Uh, verse 2, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This is one of the seismic events in church history. The Apostle Paul being sent out on his first missionary journey. This is huge. But notice what's preceding it. They're gathering with the church. Just week in, week out, every Lord's Day, maybe more frequently than that. But it says in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord. So we get ministered, we get, he's a minister, and backwards collar, and you know, one of these insipid-looking guys from a Jane Austen novel. The, the word that's used here is the word that speaks of sort of public worship ministry. Some translations even render it as sort of priestly ministry this public gathering of this church, this public worship of the church, this is happening, and in a sense, this is almost motivating and preparing the ground for this great missionary endeavor. Missions is like this rocket that comes from this launch pad of, of worship with the church. Get a little concerned if someone's like, hey, Pastor Sam, I really feel like I need to go become a missionary somewhere or start this ministry, but they're not really committed to the life of the church. Uh, I'd be very concerned about that, right, because... Gathering and worshiping with God's people is the launch pad for mission. It is the launch pad for evangelism. So it's as the apostles are worshiping and fasting that they're called to go out as missionaries. It says they're enthralled with the gospel and the glory of God. They, that they become impressed to take the gospel and glory of God to those who do not yet know it. We get this in Isaiah. Jim read so beautifully Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Holiness and the majesty of, of Yahweh exalted on his throne. And then the question, who will go for us? Here am I, send me. Worship precedes this witness, this seeing the majesty of God precedes going out on the mission of God. Psalm 96 gives us another example of this pattern of worship fueling and spilling over into missions. Let me read this to you. Psalm 96, verses one. Two and three. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Okay, call to worship. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. So it's like we're singing and worshiping God, and we look around and we realize there's nations and neighbors who do not yet sing the song of, of redemption. And we're like, we want you to get in on this. We want you to join us in this worship of the Lamb. 
He goes on, sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. The singing to God and this displaying of the gospel, one leads to the other, one cascades into the other like a waterfall. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. I think John Piper says it well when he says, missions exist because worship does not. There's people who don't yet worship God, and I'm like, I want to see you worship and know this God who is so glorious and majestic, and so I need to tell you about him and what he has done for you. And through the doorway of evangelism, they come into the banquet hall of worship. Worshiping God with his people reminds us of his glory. It reminds us of the gospel's richness. It reminds us of our Savior's majesty. And we go out from here hopefully recharged, hopefully our hearts ready to burst into flame to go tell other people about this God. So worship's the motivation, but it's also the means of our mission. We had the the verse we read a minute ago in Acts chapter 2 that fear was upon all men. It's like they they sense that God's presence is in the midst of this worshiping gathering of people. And sometimes that fear might repel people. I don't don't want to be where God is present. That's a little weird and a little unnerving. But for others, it is what draws them into the assembly of God's people. Acts chapter 16, an example where worship becomes the means of mission. Paul and Silas, they go into Philippi. And they cast a demon out of a slave girl. The people who own the slave girl are really upset because she was doing sort of fortune-telling, and they now lost their business. Drag them before the magistrates. They beat them, and they lock them in the stocks in the jail. Totally unjust, right? And they could be in there ranting and raving about how this is unjust and immoral and against our rights as Romans, and we're going to stage a picket and a protest outside the jail. But what do they do at verse 25? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, Prisoners heard them. And these are not like prisoners we've ever seen before. These guys are over there singing psalms, singing praises to God, even as their backs have been shredded open by beating, even as they're locked in probably super uncomfortable stress position in the stocks, and they're worshiping. So when we as Christians can gather and sing a hymn like, It is well with my soul. When the sea bellows are crashing up into your life, when the heartache and the suffering is real, and yet you can still say, I still believe in the goodness of God, and I'm willing to sing about it with God's people. That, I think, says so much more about the greatness and the sufficiency of God than me saying, look at all the great things that I have in my house and in my driveway. Being able to revel in the goodness and the majesty and trust in and rest in The sovereignty of God when life is not going well exalts the majesty and the grace of God before a watching watching world, far more than just celebrating material blessing. This becomes the means of uh, of witness because we then find out that there's an earthquake, the the doors are thrown open, the jailer comes in thinking everybody's escaped, and Paul says, do yourself no harm, we're all here, and then he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think there's a connection Hears them singing, hears them worshiping, gets a sense that they treasure God. Later on, when the circumstances are radically altered, he's like, okay, I want what you've got. Our worship can be a testimony of this. Another, one more example of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say you're mad? If we're all in here just sort of babbling on incoherently, people will be like, you're crazy. But if all prophesy, okay, we're declaring the word of God with one voice, and there come in one that believes not or one unlearned, he is convicted by all. He is judged of all. And thus the secrets of his heart are made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and get this, and report that God is in you or among you of a truth. We want people to come to our church services who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. And what we want them to see and come away with is not, man, look at how cool and relevant Cloverleaf is. We want them to walk out of the door saying, I don't know if I agree with everything going on there, but man, the presence of God is in that place. And we can demonstrate whether we believe that is true or not by the way that we worship. 
if when we're praying to God, we're just all twiddling our thumbs and being like, okay, we've got to go through another prayer. That does not convey that we truly believe that there is a prayer hearing God in heaven to whom we speak. And when we sing to God and we're just kind of, I'm going to mumble the words and I'm not going to get too excited about this, that does not convey that we actually believe the stuff we're singing. But man, when we lift our voices, when we say, I'm going to throw my heart and my soul into the worship of God, I'm going to listen to God's word with with readiness to obey, that says to anyone who is watching, to someone who in a sense is coming in as a spectator, that these people are really worshiping. By the way, none of us who worship should be spectators. We should be participants. So we say that worship is the motivation and the means of our mission, but it's also the aim of it. What is it that we are trying to do when we give the gospel to people? We want to see them saved, but the goal is not simply to spare people from the, the flames of hell. It is to bring them into a saving relationship as worshipers of Jesus Christ. Wherever the gospel goes, it brings genuine joy. So Acts 3, we get this account of this guy that Peter heals. He's laying by the gate of the temple. And then there's this fun little phrase that he went with them into the temple, leaping and praising God. Right? He's leaping and rejoicing and praising God as he enters in with the worship of God's people. Like exuberant joy because of how he has been rescued. When Philip goes into the, into the city of Samaria and he preaches the gospel and people are converted and are baptized, it says, and there was great joy in that city. The outcome and the aim of our mission of telling people about Jesus is to make people worshipers, is to bring them to a place where they are worshiping and treasuring and delighting in the God of heaven. That's the aim of our evangelism, the aim of our ministry. And we see that displayed in the book of Acts. When when the Ethiopian eunuch left Philip. He left him rejoicing because he had found Christ. When Cornelius was saved, he magnified God. When Paul's ministry in Pisidia and Antioch had occurred, it resulted in great joy. We see this again and again. Where the gospel comes in, it unleashes worship. We're not talking about mere happiness. Because, yeah, yeah, I found some new friends. But lasting joy because I have been found by Christ. Here's that hymn, uh, Hallelujah, I have found him. Hallelujah, he has found me. Praise God for that. So my point here is worship is not separate from our mission. It is part of our mission. It's the motivation for us going out and scattering and telling people about God. We'll all be natural evangelists for the thing we most delight in. And it's also the aim of our ministry as we preach the gospel and declare the good news to people. Our goal is to see them become worshipers. Turn from idols. Final assertion I want to make is this that worship is essential to the gathering of the church. Makes sense, right? Church is a gathering of worshipers, then when we gather, we ought to worship. But practically, what does the church do? When we gather, we follow the word. There's a principle laid out in Scripture that God shows us how he wants to be worshiped. We don't come in here and be like, well, we'll just do whatever we feel like. No, we, we, we worship in a way that, that honors the authority of the word, that we say the scripture shapes our gatherings. Now, we can just build on what we said in our first point. What, what do we see happening throughout scripture when God's people gather? We hear them, we see them hearing and reading the word. We see that in Nehemiah, they assemble and they have the Torah simply read to them. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, who is sort of leading the church in Ephesus, give attendance to the public reading of scripture. One of the things we should do when we gather, as commanded by the Word, is to simply read the Bible. How many worship services have you been to where the Bible was sort of an afterthought? We'll read a quick verse, and then we'll just kind of go on. One of the things we're trying to do here at Cloverleaf is intentionally build Scripture readings into our service more than just reading the text of the sermon. So we'll start the service with a a call to worship. It's God who assembles his people. So, so Michael will read a passage of scripture where it's calling us as God's people to come together. Here's who God is. Let's worship him. We'll have a reading sort of halfway through the service, often from the opposite testament I'm preaching from. So we had Isaiah 6, I'm preaching from Acts today, to show this continuity and this harmony of the Bible as a, as a whole. We'll have a reading of the scripture in the message and hopefully throughout the message. And then we end our gathering with a benediction of sending us out with God's word ringing in our ears. When we gather, we should read the Bible. There's a bazillion things that churches do on a gathered Sunday and neglect the thing that we're told to do, the obvious thing. 
to hear from God as part of our worship. When we gather, what else should we do? What else do we see the church doing in Acts and in the New Testament and in Scripture? When we gather, we should pray the Word. They were devoted, Acts 2.42, to the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. When we see an example of that in Acts 4, they're not just praying whatever pops into their head, they're praying Scripture. The Bible is informing and shaping the, the content and the emphases of those prayers. So when we gather, we pray the Word. You could do a quick survey of Psalms. You see there's some Psalms that are Psalms of just, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Psalms of, of praise and adoration. There are some psalms that are psalms of lament. There are some psalms that are psalms of confession. Lord, have mercy upon me for for, for our sin. Try to model that in our gatherings where we have a a prayer of adoration that is intended to focus our hearts together as God's people on His attributes. Not just generally, God bless our service, but we lift our hearts in praising and adoring who you are. Listen, if worship's about God, then our prayers ought to be about God as well. Prayer of confession, of acknowledging our brokenness, a prayer uh, of intercession, of crying out to God for His help in our lives. In just a minute as we gather for communion, we'll have some prayers of thanksgiving where we thank God for what He has done for us in Christ. You could have the old acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. All four kinds of prayers ought to be normally happening in our gatherings. We're trying to do that intentionally in our order each week. What did the church do when it gathers? The church would teach and preach the word. They were committed to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching and the heralding of God's word. It's not something different than worship. It's part of our worship as we hear from the king and submit our hearts in humbleness to his declaration. When we gather, we celebrate the word. We see in Acts eleven eighteen, Acts 14, 27, Acts 15, 4. The church would gather and be like, Paul, tell us what God is doing in other parts of the world. And he would recount to them, the Gentiles are being saved. and People are being added to the kingdom of God. And they would celebrate the advance of the word of God and the gospel. When we gather, we sing the word. So Acts chapter 5 says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. But be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So singing is part of of our gathered worship. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as well. We should sing the word. Now, I don't mean that we only take Bible verses and sing them, but what we sing ought to be biblical. It ought to reflect what the Bible says and things that are emphasized and declared and heralded in the Bible. Do you see how centered this is on the word? We sing the word, we pray the word, we read the word, we preach the word, we celebrate the word. The word is what is at the center of worship, not just experience, not just emotion. And the final thing we see the church doing is seeing the word. There are two, maybe we could argue, three ways that God makes the word visible. One of them is in the visible gathering of the body of Christ. We see sort of a tangible expression of the glory of the gospel as you look around the room. Oh, the different people that God, by his grace, has saved. We see and honor the word by by gathering. But God's given us really practically two dramatizations of the gospel. Two and only two. It's the Lord's Supper and baptism. We see the early church honoring and celebrating both when someone comes to faith in Jesus. They declare the gospel through baptism. Baptism is itself a a, a sermon declaring the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and our union to him. Communion is we're about to partake. We we see in Acts chapter 20, Paul would gather with the we see him at the church, I believe, in Troas. And he gathers with them on the first day of the week to break bread. And then he preached to them. Very simple, the word and the ordinances in the gathering. What is it that we are doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We are reenacting the gospel. We are looking back to the cross. We are celebrating the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. The, the, the broken bread symbolizes for us the broken body of Jesus that has been broken into many pieces so that we could be made one. Think about it, there's one loaf, so to speak, one piece of matzah that gets broken, and we all share in it. In a sense, we have partaken of the same thing. This is literally what makes a church one, is celebrating the Lord's Supper. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, this is one of the things that makes a church a church. The juice, 
the wine, the, the, the fruit of the vine, is a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus making, establishing a new covenant. That's the heart of the gospel, folks. When we gather, we see the word. This is part of our worship. So as we come into the table, I want to just go right into this from I'm talking about it as, as worship. Understand that what we are about to do is, is part of ascribing worth and value to God. Definitionally, the, the Lord's Supper is the communion of the saints, believers in Jesus, who followed him in baptism, remembering together what Christ has done for us. Eating the bread and drinking the juice does not do anything mystically for your soul. It doesn't convey saving grace. We're not literally eating the body or drinking the blood of Jesus. It's rather a reminder and a symbol, an opportunity for us to commune with him and to remember what he has done on our behalf. Because of that, it is only for those who are believers, right? It's only for those who have undergone the transformation of the new birth. It's a family meal. So if you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure that I'm saved, Here's what I would, would, would suggest. Just let the elements go by. Nobody's going to judge you. It is far safer to say we're going to honor God and we're going to avoid drinking condemnation to ourselves, as 1 Corinthians says. Welcome to watch. You're welcome to, to, to observe what, what is going on as we do this. Um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, walking with him, the Bible says that we should examine ourselves. It's a time for us to... Just check our hearts to see, is there anything ought between me and someone else? Jesus says, you come to the altar remember with your gift, and you remember there's ought between you and a brother, you or a sister. Leave your gift, go make it right. And maybe you need to slip out of the auditorium this morning and say, you know what, while this is going on, I need to go out and make a phone call. I need to pull someone in this room out, and man, we need to, I need to confess sin, and I need to repent. I need to make things right. This is a meal that we, we share together. So what we're going to do today, like we did uh, last week, or last, last month rather, we're going to take a moment to examine our hearts. Chris is going to come in just a minute. We're going to sing the communion hymn, and we're going to circle around the auditorium while we sing. We're going to distribute the elements around as we sing. What I'll ask is, once you get, your, once you get the cup, once you have the, the bread, just wait. We'll give instructions. We will eat it together. We will drink it together. But let's go ahead and bow together.